Get your Bibles out and let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 uh, as we continue our series in Ephesians. The word but is one of the most important words in the English language because it has the power to change the entire meaning of a sentence. And whatever came before it, it has the ability to just totally negate it, right? Uh, for example, someone might appear to be complimenting you in the first half of a sentence and, and say all kinds of really nice things and then throw in that word but and then everything that follows it just totally negates all the compliments and you realize, wow, they're, they're really putting me down right now. Uh, so a boss might say something like, Kathy, you are so smart and so talented. And Kathy would be thinking like, wow, what a great day at work. This is the best conversation I could have ever had. My boss thinks I'm smart and talented. And then the boss says, but you're lazy and unmotivated and you're fired. And then what started out as a great conversation immediately turns into the worst possible conversation. The compliment turns into a canning, all because of that little conjunction, but. In 1919, the editor of the Kansas City Star did this exact same thing when he fired an up-and-coming cartoonist by the name of Walt Disney, who, in his words, could draw, but lacked imagination and had no good ideas. <laughs> I laugh at that story every time I hear it. Oh, man. The word but doesn't just add additional information to a sentence. It radically impacts and alters it. And then often, oftentimes it completely negates what came before it. So much so that the former Secretary of State, Charles Evan Hughes, told his interpreter at one of the Pan Am conferences that he could just go ahead and summarize all of the conversation, and he could just give them a nutshell, but he needed every word explicitly, word for word, that followed the word but. He said in his words, whatever follows but is of the utmost importance. And this is true in Scripture as well. In fact, a close reading of Scripture shows that the word but might just be the most important word in the whole Bible. For example, in Genesis, if you've ever read Genesis, you know there's a guy in, in Genesis by the name of Joseph. And Joseph's got all these brothers, and, and his dad gives him a coat of many colors, which we don't really know exactly what that means. Um, but it was, a, it was a coat that represented honor and respect, and his brothers were so jealous. And so what did they do? They sold him into slavery, and he goes into Egypt, and he's a slave, and he works, and, and it's miserable. And Genesis 39, 20 says, and Joseph's master took him and put him in prison after being falsely accused of a crime that was heinous and that he definitely didn't commit. And then listen to this. But the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. So in other words, that word but shows us that really even in Joseph's darkest situation, his brothers have sold him into slavery. He's been falsely accused. He's now in prison in his darkest moment, in his most hopeless hour. He wasn't alone. The Lord was with him. And, and the same thing is true for us. Then at the end of the book, Joseph is released from prison. And he's elevated to the number two position in all of Egypt because he can interpret Pharaoh's dream. And he says there's going to be seven years of plenty and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And we need to store up all of the food now so that we have food during the famine. And, and the famine finally arrives and people from all over the region come to Egypt so that Joseph can give them food. So that they can be saved. 
And if you remember the story, among all of the people that came looking for food during that seven-year famine were his wicked brothers who sold him into slavery. Do you remember this story? And, and he finally has this opportunity to confront them. And in that opportunity, he makes this incredible and life-changing statement. In Genesis 50, 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about so that many people should be saved. In other words, the most heinous and the most evil action that I have ever experienced, my brothers kidnapping me and selling me into slavery wasn't pointless. It wasn't meaningless. It wasn't random. It was a part of God's master plan to redeem and save thousands and thousands of people. Guys, that is incredible. The same thing is true for you and me. You see, that divine conjunction, but God, means that there has never been and never will be a situation in your life that God has not ordained. Do you get that? That God has not allowed so that he will get glory, so that you will be benefited, so that you will be blessed. There's never been a moment in your life that he won't redeem, no matter how heinous or painful. He's sovereign over every detail, and we know that because of the conjunction, but God. Which is why the psalmist Asaph could say in his moment of affliction in Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or think of Job who had everything taken from him. His possessions, his servants, his kids, his health were all taken. And yet listen to his words in Job 23. Behold, I go forward and he's not there. I go backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. In other words, I've looked everywhere for God and I can't find him anywhere. Does that sound familiar? But God knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I will come out as gold. In other words, even though there are times when you and I look for God and we cannot find him, we can't feel him, we can't perceive him, no matter how hard we look or how long we look, guys, he has not abandoned us. The contrast between between Job's perception of God and God's perception of Job makes all the difference in the world. It means that our security and our hope and our joy in him don't hinge on our ability to see him. It hinges on his ability to see us. And we've been promised that he knows the way that we take. And when he has tried us, we will come out as gold. There are so many really powerful examples of this divine um, conjunction throughout Scripture. But the most powerful of all of them is in our text today. In Ephesians 2, chapter 4, which is our text this morning, or at least it's part of it. So if you have your Bibles and you're in Ephesians 2, let's look at verse 4 together and, and let's go to verse 7. It starts with that conjunction. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There are some incredible words in these short verses that should make our hearts burst with excitement and joy and passion and gratitude. Rich in mercy, great in love, raised to life, immeasurable riches, grace and, and kindness. Guys, if you are in Christ, the only thing you will ever experience or know of the Father is endless mercy. Unconditional love, extravagant grace, and benevolent kindness, period. That is the only thing you will ever experience from the Father. What great news is that? Because you're a son and daughter in his family. But, but honestly, guys, the truth is that what should stir our hearts to worship and cause us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and and really cause us to be full of praise and, and gratitude. And it should satisfy our souls and quench that never-ending thirst that we're always trying to satisfy. More often than not, causes us to yawn. Mercy, love, grace, kindness. Those words have become nothing more than mere platitudes. Christianese. Put them on bumper stickers and shirts and... You put them in little kids' nursery rhymes. Jesus loves me, this I know. And you're like yawning while you're trying to sing this. And doesn't have any effect on our affection or desire for God. Guys, the truth is that that's what they are. And that's what they'll always be. Just mere platitudes and cliches and niceties. Until you and I fully grasp who we once were. If we don't know who we once were, the love, mercy, grace, and kindness of God is, is nothing more than a nursery rhyme. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants us to see here. Not just that God is kind and that he loves us and that he's showered us with grace and mercy, but that he has done this in the context of our sin, our rebellion, our slavery, and our death. You see, if you and I really want to appreciate the love of God, we have to grasp how unlovable we once were. If we really want to have our hearts gush with gratitude for the mercy we have been shown, we have to understand that we deserve nothing but punishment. If we ever want our imaginations to be captured by the grace we've received, we've got to come to grips with um, the fact that we aren't entitled to anything but death. And if we ever want our souls to be satisfied with the kindness of God, we have to recognize that all we deserve is his righteous anger and wrath. This is why the divine conjunction, but God, is so powerful in verse 4, because what it does is it puts these two things right next to each other. It doesn't just tell us who we are now and how much, has God, how much God has done for us now in Christ. It, it shows us who we once were then. And what we deserved and what he should have done to us as a result. And so we need to see our past for what it really is. Not with a sentimental kind of homesickness. Longing for the good old days. 
which we have the tendency to do, right? We, we love looking back with, with nostalgic, rose-colored glasses for the way that things used to be, right? Caroline and I were in our bed last night looking at pictures of our kids, and we're just like, oh, you kind of like you just, you get emotional looking at how small they were. They're still small, but they were even smaller then, and you're like, oh, man, they were so cute. I just want to squeeze them, and, and it's easy to just be like, oh, wow, they were, they were these little cherubs, you know, and, it wasn't the case. Like they, they screamed and cried. Nicholas screamed and cried for the first six months of his life because he had acid reflux and we didn't know it. We don't remember that though. But thank God, man, all, we, all that we were, even though it wasn't all rosy, has been erased. The old is gone. The new has come. So what we need to do is not look back with rose-colored glasses. We need to look back at it for what it was and who we were as what we were. Not like the Israelites did. You know what the Israelites did? They looked back at the past and they said, oh, Egypt was so good. (laughs) Slavery was so good. I want to go back to that. Rather than being like them, we need to be like the Apostle Paul who says, I have abandoned my past so that I could strain forward toward the future. That's what we've got to get after. Because guys, as believers, we have not been called to live in the past. We have not been called to live in the past, but we have been called to move from one glory to the next glory, to the next glory, to the next glory, until one day, finally, we will be in glory. That's what the Christian life is. Not, I'll take a couple steps forward into glory and then three steps back again into my past, into my chains. It's supposed to be glory, 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 glory. We're constantly looking back, though, with rose-colored glasses at our sin as if it's better. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at God's revelation of who we were. And I want to do that so that our hearts will be awakened to what God has made us now. So that his mercy and his love and his kindness and grace would actually move us a little bit. So look at verse 1 with me. And we'll go to verse 3 and look at the way things were. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now that is not a very encouraging uh, three verses, I'm not going to lie. It's not easy. That word follow is a unique word. It's, um, he says we followed the course of the world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We followed the desires of our flesh. Um, it, it doesn't really capture the, the Greek word for follow, which really means to be mastered or controlled by or enslaved to something. Our, our word follow is kind of like follow the leader. Like we're out there having fun. We're just walking the line following people. Like this is not a choice. We had no choice in the matter whatsoever. If anything, this is a better image of what it means to follow in Paul's mind. And in in the Greek language, it had the idea that we were in shackles, in chain, hands and feet, that that our eyes were blinded, that our, our, our necks were in vices, and we had to walk in this way. We had no other choice. That's what Paul wants us to imagine when he says we were following the course of this world. 
or we were following the prince of the power of the air, who's the devil, or we were following the desires of our flesh, we were enslaved in bondage to them. In fact, you can, you can take that image off, David, thank you. In fact, it was so bad that Paul actually describes it as if we were as helpless as dead bodies, unable to make a single move towards God. He says, you were dead in your transgressions. Not sick, not like half dead, dead, not moving, not breathing, cold, corpse. And notice that he says we were in bondage to three things. First, he says we followed the spirit of the world. And that, that word world is, is the word cosmos. It's used 186 times throughout the New Testament. And every time it's used, it's used in a very negative way. And most of the time, it has the idea of, of the spirit of the age uh, or worldliness, for lack of a better word. In other words, our souls were held captive by the system of this world, the, the group think. As one author put it, we were willing slaves to the pop culture of the media, the, the group think of talk shows, post-Christian mores, and man-centered religious fads. This is what we were in bondage to when we didn't even realize it. Yesterday morning, I, uh, I was up in my apartment building's lounge watching soccer on the big screen, our, our Caroline's parents are watching our kids all weekend, so we've just been like on vacation holiday. <laughs> it's been incredible. Went on like three dates, slept in, living the dream. Uh, we got to do this every weekend. I'm not going to lie. Uh, so I just woke up yesterday. I went to the gym. I worked out. I'm like, I'm going to go watch Manchester United, which is my team, play their rival Chelsea on this big screen. And our lounge is weird right now. It's new construction. And so for some reason, the audio on the TV was deactivated. And the audio from the Top 40 radio was on full blast. And so I'm like trying to watch this game. And I'm listening to two hours of total trash, um, which I try to avoid at, at all costs if I can. I'm not a fan. But, but as I was there watching uh, Manchester United give up their 2-1 lead in the last 40 seconds in a bitter tie, um, I couldn't help but listen uh, to the teachers of our culture which is really what our music is, right? I mean, they're teaching us what to think and how to live. And it was heartbreaking. I've been away for a while from Top 40 Radio, so you guys are used to this, but it was new for me. Um, one of them particularly stood out, and I don't, I don't know who sang it, I don't know what it's called, but the chorus of the song goes something like this, loneliness is my disease, and you're the remedy. You know that song? Is that famous? It was on the radio. I don't know who sings it. Now, out of all the songs I heard, this is probably the cleanest one. Not going to lie. Okay. Um, goodness, I can't believe what they're letting on the radio these days. It's, it's wild. Um, but the message of this song is no less destructive. You see, he knows he's got a problem. He knows that he's got a disease. He feels the emptiness. But the only solution he has access to because his neck is in a vice is someone else who's struggling with the exact same emptiness and the exact same loneliness and the exact same hole inside of her heart. Someone who's not going to be able to satisfy him at all. Guys, this is exactly what Paul is talking about here. We know we're diseased. 
We know we're not right. We know something's missing and that there's this gaping hole inside of every single one of us and we're all desperately searching for a cure, but our bondage keeps our eyes downward, under the sun, horizontal, not vertical, material, not spiritual. And it forces us to look to created things like money and power and romance and love and pleasure to be our remedy. We know we need one, but we are as helpless as a dead body to make a single move toward the only one who can actually heal us. That's what it means to be controlled by the course of this world. To know that you're sick and at the same time not be able to look to the only one who can make you well. That's bondage. The second thing that Paul says we were controlled by or in bondage to is the devil. The prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point because I really don't want to make too much of the devil here today. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-present. He can't read your thoughts. Ultimately, he can't do anything that the Lord doesn't allow him to do. He is a weak and bitter loser who is on his way to judgment. But his spirit is alive and well in the sons of disobedience. And 1 Timothy 3, 6-7 shows us that his spirit is a spirit of pride and conceit and self-centeredness. You remember what made the devil the devil? What made the devil the devil was what we have a tendency to write off as acceptable behavior. That's the fact that he was just a little bit too full of himself. Just, just a wee bit. He was just a little bit too puffed up. You see, what took this beautiful angel and turned him into the father of evil, and what took Adam and Eve's perfect relationship with the father in the garden and turned it into separation, sin, darkness, curse, and everything that followed from it is what we have the tendency to casually brush off and excuse and sometimes even celebrate pride. It is the root of all evil. And it is the spirit of this age. It's at work in all of us, the conceit of man. And guys, I want you to understand as we talk about this divine conjunction, but God, and we talk about love and mercy and grace and kindness and all of this stuff, do you know what God hates more than anything in the world? Pride. Psalm 18, 27. You save an afflicted people, but proud eyes you abuse. Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is proud in heart is detestable to the Lord. Detestable. I thought God loved everyone. Be assured that the proud will not go unpunished. Jeremiah 50, 31, behold, I am against you, O arrogant one. Amos, the Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts has declared, 
I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and I detest his citadels. In James 4, 6, God is opposed to the proud. There there are a lot of other verses I could read, but I want to show you, Paul wants us to see that we were in bondage to the very thing that the Lord hates more than anything else in the world. The spirit of, of the God of this world which says, I don't need him. In fact, I actually want to be like him. I want to be in his position. I want to be the God of my own life. I want to make my own decisions, and I want to do what's right in my own eyes. I want autonomy, and from birth, that's all we knew. And so by nature, we were objects of wrath. That's who we were. He was opposed to us from birth. He did not love us from birth. All we deserved was condemnation and death. We were detestable in his sight, heirs of judgment. And it was because of our arrogance and our pride. Guys, that is true bondage. And then the third thing we were enslaved to is our sinful nature. And I think this is really the most important thing. Paul says that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh Carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. The Greek word for flesh is sarx, which isn't talking about physical bodies. It's it's talking about the core of who we are. You could call it, you know, your heart if you want, or whatever it is that drives everything we do as human beings. It's talking about our nature as humans. In other words, Paul is saying, we were once mastered by ourselves and bondage to ourselves. The sin inside of our hearts. And this is so important for us to grasp today because what it means is that our primary master isn't something outside of us. Our primary master isn't the world. And it isn't the devil. Our primary master is us and the indwelling sin that we're born with. Our sinful hearts. In other words, the reason we're enslaved isn't because of the world and it isn't because of the devil. Don't try to blame them, okay? It's because our hearts are profoundly wicked and opposed to God. Martin Luther once said, the human heart is curved inward. Our our nature is so deeply curved on itself that it looks to use all things, even God, for its own sake. Our hearts are curved inward. We love ourselves, focused on ourselves, obsessed with ourselves, so much so that Even the good things we do, we do for ourselves. We want to make a name for ourselves and be seen as good people. For for example, in college, I can remember I I had a crush on a girl. And and I knew she was nothing compared to my wife. Um, We actually never even dated. We'll get to that in a minute. But I want you to know that nothing nothing ever happened here. But I had a crush on this girl. and, And I knew as I was like trying to get her attention that she... Uh, she had a class at a certain time of day, and, and I knew she sat by the window that overlooked the sidewalk. And so I would try to time my walks to the uh, cafeteria so that I'd walk by the window, and hopefully she'd take notice of me, and the Holy Spirit would nudge her in my direction. Like, oh, there's that guy. He always walks by at this time. You know, maybe I should you know, talk to him. And, uh, and I remember one time I was walking by this window, and there was a trash can, and I just so happened to see uh, an empty Coke can on the side of the sidewalk, like probably six feet away from the trash can. Slobs, right? And, and I, on any other day, 
I would have totally just walked by this can. Or maybe I would have dribbled it like a soccer ball and like kicked it at the trash can and, and kept, kept walking. But on this day, I thought, maybe she's in the window and maybe she's watching. And I want her to think I'm a good guy. And so I bent over slowly and, and, I, and I picked up that can slowly. I wanted to make sure if she wasn't looking, she'd have time to look. <laughs> and, and I slowly walked that can over to the trash can and I put it in and I thought, score for Ben Davy. <laughs> well, I came, I came to find out later, she didn't even sit by that window, okay? So all of that trash can stuff was for nothing. It was a total waste of time. Man, we, we do good stuff to, to try to make a name for ourselves, to try to make ourselves look better than we are, right? Even, even as parents, like, if I'm taking my kids out to, to Carowinds, which you got the season pass to Carowinds, I'm going to be totally transparent with you. I want people to know I'm a good dad, and I'm taking my kids to Carowinds. And so I Instagram that stuff. Total transparency right now. I want you to know I care about my wife. Had a date with my wife. Instagram that. Wow, what a husband. I'm just being transparent with you. Even the good stuff we do, we want people to look at us and say, he's a good guy. He's a good pastor. He's a good husband. He's a good dad. Our hearts are curved inward. <laughs> so everything we do is still about us. Have you ever done this before? But our hearts don't stop there, guys. They don't just cause us to try to do good things so that people will look at us. You know what they do? They actually take the good that we've done and they use it to justify evil. The first episode of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, which I would highly recommend. I, I really enjoy that, that podcast a lot. But it spends basically an hour talking about this. Uh, there's a term for it that uh, sociologists and, and psychologists have, have called um, moral licensing. Moral licensing. And it is the tendency to look at the past at something good that we once did and then use that as an excuse to justify something bad that we want to do. For example, studies have actually been shown that people who voted for Barack Obama are more likely to... How's it going, guys? It's all right. Studies have been shown that, that people who um, voted for Barack Obama are more likely to express and demonstrate racist actions and attitudes in the future. And the reason is, they would say, well, I voted for a black president, and they view that as a free pass, moral licensure to do really whatever they want and act however they want in the future. Isn't that interesting? And we say, oh, I'd never do that. That's evil. And yet, just think about how we do it in small things that aren't even really sin-related. Like, have you ever worked out in the morning, and then later on that day, you've driven past a Dunkin' Donuts, and you've been like, you know what? I worked out this morning. I deserve that donut. <laughs> Anybody ever been there? You take something good that you did, and something healthy that you did, an awesome decision, and you're like, I earned this. <laughs> I deserve to satisfy the desires of my heart. How many of us have ever said, you know what, I, I worked a long, full day today. I deserve a five-hour Netflix binge. Anybody? You think that's a good thing, by the way? <laughs> I'm just like, I'm not just asking. You think that's like wise? 
I've been there, okay? I've been honest most of my life. It's okay to lie just this one time about this one thing. I've been physically pure with my girlfriend, so it's okay for me to look at porn. Who's that hurting? Uh, I'm actually a really nice person to just about everyone. It's okay for me to be a jerk to that guy because he's a jerk to me. I don't break any of the big laws, so it's okay for me to drive, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 over. That's something that I use a lot and I need to grow in. (laughs) Guys, our hearts are pros at convincing us that our evil is good. And they even use the good deeds that we've done in our lives to do it. They cause us to see everything and everyone, even God, as means to our end. Have you ever gone to God and said, you know what, I'm going to read my Bible for like, I'm going to read it every day. I'm going to pray to you every day. I'm going to go to church every Sunday. I'm going to give money to that church. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to cuss at work, but you better give me that hot wife. Or you better give me that promotion. Or you had better give me this, and you had better give me that. And then when he doesn't do it, what happens? I don't know if I believe in God anymore. He didn't give me what I wanted. Our hearts keep us analyzing the world through this filter that that measures everything about what we can get out of it. How we can use people to um, give us something and advance our agenda and our name and our kingdom. So, in other words, we were once slaves to ourselves. Addicted to our own ego. And as a result, we were objects of wrath. And guys, we have to understand that this was true of every single one of us. No exception. I'm trying to be transparent with you today. I don't want you to ever put me on a pedestal. The only way off a pedestal is to fall. I'm trying to be real with you here. I am this, and so are you. You see, we're great at spotting this stuff in other people, aren't we? It's easy to see people who like to use others for their own gain. And we can spot them a mile away. And when we spot them, we're like, uh uh, like, stay away from me, okay? If we're mean to people, it's the people that we know are trying to use us, right? One of my old seminary friends was like this. I'm not going to tell you his name. Maybe he'll listen to this someday. Uh, But he was a total people climber, a total name dropper. And I learned after a little while that if my phone was ringing and it was him, it was because he needed something or he wanted me to do something for him every single time. And so after a while, I just stopped picking up the phone. I couldn't stand being around him. I actually bumped into him at a conference in Kentucky not too long ago, and he hasn't changed at all. He just dropped all these names of like famous people he's been hanging out with and told me all this stuff that he had done. He didn't ask me about myself at all. And man, I got out of that conversation as soon as I could, and I left thinking, like, I can't stand that guy. But I am that guy. I'm just better at hiding it. I'm better at pretending that I care. So are all of you. In all honesty, we can't stand people like that. And now I want you to just multiply the disdain that you feel for those people by 10 billion and apply it to yourself. And think about how God views you. 
who opposes the proud, who hates the arrogant, who detests the conceited. So were all of you. That's who we were. Slaves to our self-obsessed, self-loving, self-gratifying hearts. But God. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy. Didn't say, I can't stand you and I don't want to be near you. Loved us. Instead of giving us the death we deserved, he made us alive together with his son. Instead of giving up on us, which we would all do every single time, he forgave what was inexcusable in us. Rather than turning his back on us with cold indifference, he drew us into his kindness and adopted us into his family. Rather than condemning us to hell, which is what we all deserved, he crushed his son on the cross so that he could raise us up and seat us in heaven with him. What amazing grace. Do you see that grace? Because you just have to look hard beyond that like rose-colored nostalgia that like, oh, God got a really great guy when he got me. See yourself for who you are and marvel at the magnitude of mercy. So now there is no bondage to the world. There's no bondage to the devil because he's trampled both of them under the feet of his son. Amen. There is no more slavery to our sinful hearts because he has redeemed us. He's given us new hearts that are no longer bent inwards but turned upwards so we can actually see him and love him and know him and be satisfied by him. We don't have to look to other human beings to fill us up anymore. We can be filled and as a result love others unconditionally because we don't need anything from them anymore. Isn't that freedom? Guys, the mercy of God is not a mere platitude. The love of God is not a cliche. His grace and kindness are not just some nice little souvenirs that you get when you become a Christian. They are life and freedom and hope and joy and peace. They are everything. And apart from them, we are and we have nothing. So praise God for that divine conjunction. Amen? Praise God he didn't leave us in our sin. But because of his great love for us, showed us mercy. May it awaken our joy and our hope today. May it cause us to love him more. To be full of gratitude. How can we complain when we have a God who loves us like this? May we do this all for his glory. Let's pray. Father.